This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. For 483 majority, concurring, and dissenting opinions, we'll steer the court for decades. They are written with the unaffected grace of precision. Her voice in court and in our conference room was soft, but when she spoke, people listened. For the first time in 27 years, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's voice will not be heard at the Supreme Court. The court's liberal wing was outmatched before her death, and it's going to get worse. How much worse? That depends. The court's four liberals had managed to eke out some wins in controversial cases when a conservative justice, usually the chief justice, crossed over to build a majority in five to four cases. Now they'll have to win over two conservatives. My guest is Andrew Crespo, a professor at Harvard Law School. He clerked for both Justices Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan. There was only one case in the past term involving a hot-button social issue in which two conservative justices, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Neil Gorsuch, sided with the liberal justices in a landmark victory for gay rights. So what does a new, solid, conservative majority mean for the prospect of liberal victories in the future? So I think it is the essential question, and the short answer is we don't know. That could go, I think, in sort of one of two ways. The assumption, based on some of what she's written and on her profile, is that a new Justice Coney Barrett will join Justices Thomas and Alito in forming what is the sort of far-right grouping on the current Supreme Court, the most conservative justices. And obviously, the liberal wing of the court, which used to be four justices, will now be composed of just three, Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor. The open question is what happens with the other two or three justices on the court, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and Justice Neil Gorsuch. But look, it's important to realize that those three justices are also strongly conservative justices. This is now going to be a 6-3 conservative court in terms of the ways in which those justices think about some of the essential questions of legal interpretation of constitutional law. You have six justices who share a common conservative approach, who have had the career trajectories and the jurisprudential philosophies that mark them all as part of a clearly identifiable conservative tradition of jurisprudence. The thing that might subdivide that group of six is how much they view themselves as institutionalists versus conservatives, first and foremost. In other words, how much is their primary instinct to try to protect the Supreme Court as an institution, to try to steer it away from the bumpiest, most turbulent sort of culture war and ideological battles so that the court can try to maintain at least the image and potentially the reality of being above the fray? Or how much is their primary goal to actually win those cultural battles and, you know, full steam ahead into them? So where do you see the conservatives falling on that spectrum? I think that Justices Thomas and Alito are more like in that latter camp, more likely to prioritize winning those battles. I think that we've seen Chief Justice Roberts, at least for the time being, in that institutionalist position. And that's how we've seen some 5-4 rulings that the liberals have won because the chief has sometimes sided with them. The key thing now is the chief alone won't be able to do that. So the question is, will there emerge a kind of institutionalist middle block, perhaps 
with Justice Kavanaugh joining the Chief Justice to join with the remaining three liberals in rulings that try to just turn down the temperature, that try to steer toward calmer waters. That's the big question. If that happens, then you could potentially see the emergence of some continued 5-4 rulings where the far conservative wing still loses. If that doesn't happen, then I think you'll see a real growing and emerging chasm between the six and the three. Justice Kavanaugh only sided with the liberals in a 5-4 to four decision once this past term, and that involved antitrust. So why would he be that second vote that the liberals need besides the chief? Well, the dynamics have changed, right? Before, you didn't need his vote to allow the court to protect its institutional reputation because the chief was carrying that all on his shoulders. The chief alone could sometimes vote with the four liberal justices and allow the court to not be sort of taken sharply and aggressively all in one direction on some of these most top-line issues. In other words, Justice Kavanaugh was off the hook before. His vote wasn't necessary for the court to be able to chart that type of path that tries to occasionally steer clear of some of the most divisive, the most aggressively conservative rulings. Now that won't be the case, right? Now the chief at most, if he tried to do that by himself, would be giving a fourth vote. There needs to be a fifth vote. So the question is, does Justice Kavanaugh now see himself as essentially, um, you know, being in the hot seat uh, on those questions of do we go the route of, you know, going hard to the right or trying to uh, turn down the temperature and steer clear of some of these, um, these most divisive issues. It's basically his decision now, or at least it's his decision and the chiefs together. Whereas before, frankly, he wasn't being called on for that, right? You know, <laughs> now, now, uh, now the attention turns to him. This assumes that all three of the liberals stick together, and they haven't always. There were cases this past term where Justices Breyer and Kagan sided with the conservatives. So how tight is this new liberal group? Yeah, so, you know, whenever there's an instance in which the court is potentially um, staying its hand and not going for the most, um, you know, far-right interpretation on the table— you can count on the three justices Ginsburg, I'm sorry, justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor uh, to want to resist any sort of hardship to the right. Um, but your question, I think, gets at, well, what do we expect to happen? Will we continue to see the occasional um, rulings where justices Breyer and justices Kagan sometimes um, vote in ways that one might not expect if one was just sort of a predicting a sort of, you know, liberal conservative split. Um, I think that we have seen in the past those two justices, um, you know, when Justice Ginsburg was on the court, the four liberal justices sometimes had two different approaches within their group, right? There was Justice Ginsburg and Justice Sotomayor, uh, who would often articulate sometimes the, um, the um, strong form version of, of, of a liberal position. And then you sometimes saw Justices Breyer and Kagan together trying to create a climate on the court where the Chief Justice, uh, where it was, um, he had a sort of hospitable, uh, welcoming um, environment in which he could take that decision to sort of protect the institution and try to find a sort of narrower or, or um, you know, an, an approach that would turn down the temperature. And they were they were trying to meet him and trying to help him do that. I think that if we see an institutionalist middle 
block emerge with Chief Justice uh, Roberts and potentially a Justice Kavanaugh, that it would not surprise me to see Justices Breyer and Kagan continue trying to you know, do their part and, and, and also create a, a, a institutionalist middle of the court. But if instead Justices Kavanaugh, if Justice Kavanaugh does not show up for that, or if the Chief Justice decides that he can have more influence over the court by actually voting with the six all the time and assigning those opinions, then Justices Breyer and Kagan won't have anyone willing to join them in that effort of trying to, um, you know, steer the court towards the, 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 the narrower and less contentious ground. And I don't know that, you know, they would keep showing up for that if they keep trying to, to be there and meet some of their colleagues uh, in that middle spot. If they're constantly showing up and they're alone, then I'm not sure that there's much uh, reason for them to continue doing that. And you may see uh, a more permanent and entrenched and kind of almost um, uh, uh, separated wings of the court where it really is the three um, liberal justices very much together uh, holding up as the, the firm dissenting wing of the court as opposed to trying to find a kind of institutional center. Justice Kagan, whom you clerked for, is seen as this sort of go-between, moderator, negotiator. What will her role be like on this new court? A lot harder. Uh, A lot harder. And, uh, you know, she is uh, an incredibly talented both jurist, but also someone who understands these dynamics better than probably, you know, as well as not better than anybody. Uh, There's, you know, maybe a, a couple of people who are also on the Supreme Court who understand these dynamics as well as she does. But, you know, if, if I've been describing this right, her job has gotten, in some sense, I guess, twice as hard, right? She now needs to um, try to find ways to persuade two people who might not be inclined to agree with her uh, on the sort of merits of some of these issues that it is to the good of the court and to the good of the country for them to come together and try to find ways to steer the court away from all of the troubled waters that come from going just full steam ahead into, you know, all of the, the, um, the, 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 the rocks and shoals of, of divisive culture wars. Or she has to persuade the chief justice or she has to work with the chief justice or um, try to find common ground in that shared desire for that institutionalist uh, middle position. Now she needs to persuade him and at least one other person. Finally, Justice Breyer is now the leader of the liberal bloc. Do you see his role being in any way different from Justice Ginsburg's? Justice Breyer is uh, an incredibly uh, thoughtful and also pragmatic uh, justice. So I think that he is someone well-suited to now being the, the leader of an increasingly, you know, of a shrinking liberal wing of the court. Um, he is someone who I think will be trying very hard to find ways to um, try to build or, or try to um, assemble that type of institutionalist uh, middle position, in part because that's the way he thinks, I think, about the court, and also because he's someone who is going to be trying to find solutions. Uh, and so I think that he's, 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 he's an able and, and, and adept and in some ways a sort of um, fortuitous person to have in the senior position of the liberal uh, wing of the court. You know, in, in, um, in many ways, as your wing gets smaller, 
the role of the leader uh, changes also, right? There's now really just three of them. And I expect that the three of them will uh, recognize that they are more isolated than they were last term, that they have a harder job uh, than they have had at any point in time at which any of them have been on the court. And that's the type of thing that I would expect draws colleagues together uh, and that he will be the leader of that, uh, of, of that um, component of the court, but that the three of them also, I think, will just be uh, constantly checking in with each other and uh, recognizing um, how much they are now in uh, a really a shared position, uh, trying to articulate a vision of the Constitution and of the law that is much harder uh, for them to prevail on than was true just a few months ago. That's Professor Andrew Crespo of Harvard Law School. As the Supreme Court began its term, it also announced some cases that it rejected. In legal speak, cases in which the court denied certiorari. One of those cases involved an incident that gained national attention in 2015. Kim Davis, the former Kentucky clerk who refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples because of her religious beliefs, is being sued by two gay couples. A federal appeals court rejected her claims of qualified immunity. What's most interesting is not that the justices refused to hear Davis's appeal. That happens to thousands of cases every year. It's the statements made by two of the justices about gay marriage in rejecting that appeal. Joining me is Steve Sanders, a professor at Indiana University's Morris School of Law. Steve, first tell us what the basis of the lawsuits against Davis is. So we all remember in the wake of the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision, there was this drama where you had a a county clerk in Kentucky who refused to issue marriage licenses uh, uh, to gay couples because she said it was uh, a violation of her personal religious beliefs. And so this lawsuit has been through various iterations in, in, in the federal courts. But basically what it boils down to is that the couples are seeking um, damages. They are, they, they are saying that um, they were injured, that their constitutional rights were violated by the fact the clerk refused to give them a marriage license. And so they're actually, uh, there's no injunctive relief that they can seek any longer because, of course, you know, they're married and, and, and marriage equality is now the law. But they're saying that, um, you know, a government official violated our constitutional rights and that is actionable for damages. Kim Davis's defense is that she was entitled to qualified immunity. More commonly, we've heard it recently used by police officers. Explain what her defense is there. Sure. The, the rule of qualified immunity is something the Supreme Court has developed in order to balance the idea that, yes, uh, when people have their constitutional rights violated, uh, they should be entitled to compensation uh, for those uh, for those damages, for those injured rights, for the emotional distress and other things that they suffer, which are real and compensable injuries that are long recognized in the law. But qualified immunity says that needs to be balanced with the idea that we don't want to hold a government actor personally liable, personally accountable, unless they were not acting in good faith, and you know, unless uh, the law that they violated was clearly established that uh, they didn't make a reasonable mistake. And, and so, um, often, what we see in these police cases is courts will say, "Well, that particular." 
kind of excessive use of force that the police are alleged to have used, that had not been clearly established previously as a violation of the Fourth Amendment rule against excessive use of force, and so we're going to give the police officer a pass. Here, by contrast, the couples argue, look, the Supreme Court decided the Obergefell case uh, quite clearly. Um, at that point, uh, the rule of marriage equality became clearly established law. It became clearly established that states and their functionaries like Kim Davis could not deny the constitutional right to marry to same-sex couples. And, and so that's where we are right now. The, um, the, the Sixth Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals for that that covers Kentucky, said that um, uh, the suit may proceed. Now, it hasn't been to trial yet, but it says the plaintiffs have stated a claim and Kim Davis does not have immunity to prevent that case from going forward because she is alleged to have violated a right that was not in a gray area, that was not yet undecided. Um, it, it was clearly established, the right to marry. Is she also being sued in her official capacity as clerk? So it gets slightly complicated because it gets into the difference of whether she is acting as a county official or as a state official. Um, on, On its surface, it would seem as though she's a county official. She's a county clerk. She's elected by the citizens of the county. Her salary is paid by the county. But what the Federal Court of Appeals said in issuing marriage licenses, she is acting as a state official. She is she is exercising power that she has under state law. It is state law that regulates marriage licenses. So that being the case, she can't be sued for damages in her official capacity because states have sovereign immunity from lawsuits for damages. Um, Most state employees and and state government actors, when they're sued for constitutional violations, must be sued in their individual capacity. That gets around the state's sovereign immunity, this sort of ancient protection that states have against being sued. Now, that ends up not being terribly consequential because although technically she is being sued individually, she is personally on the hook, um, it's almost always the case, and I assume it's the case here, that she is indemnified and defended by um, uh, the, the, the government lawyers. The government voluntarily makes the decision to indemnify and defend its employees. And so um, this gets into a bit of a technicality that has uh, uh, kind of lurks in constitutional law where you can't sue a state or a state official in their own, uh, in the state's name for damages. You have to sue them individually. Steve, do we know why the court turned down Davis's appeal? Well, no, we never really know for sure. So the Court of Appeals has said she does not have qualified immunity. She must face this lawsuit as a defendant going forward. A trial may take place, and in the end, she may or may not be accountable for damages to the gay couple. She and her lawyers from a group called Liberty Council, which is really, I think, to be candid among the most far-right conservative religious liberty organizations that exist right now. She sought to have the Supreme Court review that qualified immunity determination, and the Supreme Court denied it. In in the parlance, they denied certiorari. The Supreme Court rejects the vast majority of cert petitions that it receives. So as you say, we don't necessarily know why the court denied this. I mean, presumably, they simply think this does not 
present a substantial question or they, they do not think that there is a strong enough risk that the lower court erred here that four justices, which is what it takes to grant a cert petition, decided that it was worth the court's attention. Justice Thomas agreed with the decision itself, but he wrote a scathing statement in which he condemned the Obergefell decision, which legalized gay marriage, and the court's alteration of the Constitution. How unusual is his statement? This is a little unusual. In the vast majority of times, the Supreme Court denies a petition for certiorari. You just get a one-sentence order, petition denied, and none of the justices speak to it. The court doesn't explain itself. It just has decided not to hear that case. And if justices do speak, it's usually because they're dissenting from the decision. They believe the court should have heard the case. This was not a dissent. It was merely labeled as a statement. So Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, basically says, look, I agree we shouldn't hear this case. You know, we shouldn't take up this issue of qualified immunity. But now let me get something off my chest. You know, I predicted five years ago that the Obergefell decision would cause a lot of harm to religious liberty that states should have been allowed to resolve the question through legislation, not through a court decision, because they could craft religious accommodations. He refers to it as the court's alteration of the Constitution, which is tendentious language. I mean, the court interpreted the Constitution. When you don't like the result, you say the court has altered the Constitution. So again, it's sort of Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, seemed to think he had to get this off his chest. You know, everything I predicted about the harmful religious liberty consequences of Obergefell had come through. Nonetheless, in the end, I agree we shouldn't hear this petition that Kim Davis should have to go to trial and potentially face damages. So what can you read into this about the future of gay marriage? What I read into this is that the fact that only two justices issued this statement I interpret the fact that the court's other three current conservative, Chief Justice Roberts, who voted against the Obergefell decision, plus Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh, didn't join this statement as a strong signal that a majority of the court going forward has no appetite to revisit the core holding of the Obergefell decision. This is really Justice Thomas and Justice Alito fighting the last war. And they have not gotten anyone else to join them, even though if we were deciding the question today for the first time, some of the uh, the court's conservatives might feel the same way. We know how Justice Roberts felt back in 2015. He voted against the Obergefell decision. Nonetheless, it's law. Tens of thousands of people are getting married, have gotten married. They've relied on the decision. I take the fact that Thomas and Alito alone issued this statement as a strong indication that the other conservatives on the court, not to mention the more liberal justices, have no appetite for relitigating the basic soundness of the Obergefell marriage equality decision. Do you read from this that Thomas and Alito, if they could, if they had the votes, would reverse Obergefell? It certainly seems that way. I think that's a fair implication because, again, for them, the consequences of the decision for religious liberty seem to be paramount. Couple that with their basic view that this is a question that should be resolved through the democratic process, through state-by-state legislation, not by a 
court decree. So I think it is a fair indication that if the issue were teed up somehow again for the court's decision, they would overturn Obergefell. But again, that's two justices out of nine, and I just don't foresee any reasonable possibility that this is going to come back to the court, or if it did, that you would find a majority of the court willing to relitigate this question. Thanks, Steve. That's Steve Sanders of Indiana University's Morris School of Law. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, with a new conservative justice on the court, the liberal justices will be looking for new alliances. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.